The B.C. Supreme Court has struck down as unconstitutional the provincial government's second attempt to save ICBC litigation costs by capping the costs successful plaintiffs could recover for experts in personal injury suits. We've talked about this before, and it's a pleasure to talk to about it again to our, our friend Bill Dick, joining us from Kelowna, where he runs the uh, interior office for one of British Columbia's better-known personal injury law firms, Murphy Batista. Mr. Dick QC is also president of the Trial Lawyers Association of British Columbia. Bill, good morning and welcome back. Good morning. Thanks for having me on, Sterling. Well, it's good to have you back with us. We talked about this uh, when it went to trial a few months ago. Uh, this, of course, referring to the ICBC dumpster fire. But I'm going to some. Uh, I'm going to quote the judge uh, in the, the second attempt. The thinly veiled purpose of this legislation is to improve the finances of ICBC. Justice Nathan Smith goes on to describe how, but basically, another attempt to put out the ICBC dumpster fire and a second attempt failed. So this is, again, on, basically, it lands in the lap of David Eby, doesn't it? It does. And, and just, just, just briefly, uh, injured people have the burden of proof. They, they have to be able to prove liability. They have to be able to prove, ultimately, what their damages are. And they need to do that through experts. Um, and, and typically, the successful litigant gets their costs of those experts from the unsuccessful litigant. Uh, and Historically, if there was a dispute over whether something was reasonable or not, uh, a judge would exercise his or her discretion and say, yeah, it's excessive, it's not excessive. And, and David Eby and ultimately ICBC said, well, we don't like how much we're paying. And so they brought in rules that would, would sort of cap what they consider to be reasonable or not. And it's kind of like a, a, a divorce proceeding that's acrimonious and your spouse gets to ultimately decide what's fair and reasonable. And not surprisingly, it was unfair and unreasonable um, in terms of the rules that they brought in and arbitrary. And in this particular case, uh, the judge found that it created a, a, an economic barrier or a disincentive for injured people to proceed to trial or pursue their claims. And ultimately, the judge found it to be unconstitutional. Well, again, as as any citizen, as I understand it, in a free country, any citizen who uh, feels beset upon by government has the right to take the government to court and, and, and settle it or at least resolve the matter. Uh, this would deny court access to people who have been injured, uh, in many cases, through no fault of their own bill. So uh, what changes would uh, would one expect based on this second denial? Well, one would hope that uh, David Eby uh, would read this decision and, and take what this judge said seriously, which is this is preventing access to justice to people who are disadvantaged and disabled. And, and access to justice would be an absolute uh, imperative for, for our government. And what they should do is go back to the drawing board and say, let's give back that discretion to the judges. Judges will be able to decide independently what's reasonable and what's unreasonable, rather than a litigant who you're up against, a government, a multi-billion dollar corporation deciding for you. So let's talk a little bit about capping, because that's that's one of the big buzzwords of this whole decision, Bill. Uh, in addition to capping or, what, or trying to limit the amount of money that would be available to experts to testify on, the, on behalf of those who have been injured, uh, was there also an attempt to cap the amount of damages one could seek? Uh, 
Uh, no, not not in this particular uh, piece of legislation. They did that in other uh, legislation called the Minor Injury Regulation, which they sought to cap the amount that you could recover. This was simply uh, a cap on how much you could recover for disbursements and how many experts you could actually um, have to, to help you and assist you to prove your claim. So let's talk a little bit about experts, because the knock on experts, of course, is that they're professionals. It's an industry, and they basically make a pretty handsome living going from trial to trial to trial, testifying on behalf of whoever, uh, receiving handsome fees for said testimony. And uh, Bob's your uncle. So this is an industry that needs some uh, attention. That's that's yeah, the, I mean, that's that's the the uh, the rationale, certainly behind some of this. That, that, that was the rationale behind, uh, I think, David Eby's decision to say, look, there's too much money being spent on this. But there was already a mechanism in place in our, in our Supreme Court rules that, that would allow someone to challenge whether a fee was reasonable or not or excessive. And, and, and again, that was the, the discretion of a judge. And, you know, I've had uh, some of my cases where it was challenged and the judge said, you know what, that's, that's too much money or... Uh, that's excessive, and there there are other ways to deal with these kind of these kind of expenses. You can go to the College of Physicians and say, you know, we want to put a cap on how much medical legal reports will be. And right. there's lots of other ways you can do it. So then, uh, what's now, Mr. Eby is caught in a very in- interesting situation here, Bill, because uh, it, it very well could be that he's going to step down as uh, Attorney General and become a candidate for the Premier's job in uh, a matter of weeks, if not days. So what happens to this whole file while he steps aside? Somebody will be uh, appointed to look after the, the, the ministry, but is this essentially on hold until the leadership issue is over and we've got a new Premier in charge? Well, there will obviously be someone who's going to have to step in and, and assume the role of attorney general sure. in our process and administer justice. Um, and in terms of this particular case, uh, ICBC and the government have already filed their appeal um, immediately, almost, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and want to keep in place this unfair provision uh, in the interim. We're likely going to fight that and say, no, the, the law has been struck down and, and is deemed to be an access to justice problem and, and it should carry on. But someone else is going to have to step up in the interim and, and assume the role that David Eby had been doing. When it comes to the, uh, you, you use the collective we in terms of fighting this, and we being the Trial Lawyers Association of BC, do you represent your association and do you plead these cases in court, Bill, or do you have others who do that? Um, well, we, we work with, with our counsel. We retain independent counsel who will go forward and argue these cases. They're usually um, people who have constitutional law expertise. Okay. And, and, but they consult with, with me and others in, in terms of our, uh, our strategy and, and our, our legal arguments. And uh, we have a, a very, very competent lawyer named Ryan DL who's done excellent work for us. So, Bill, uh, final question to you. And we are grateful, by the way, for getting up a little earlier than expected on a Saturday morning to do this. But it's an important uh, file and, and we, it's important to, to have your, your take on it because we've talked about it in the past. So what do you think is going to happen next? Well, in, in terms of overall, I mean, the, the economic imperative that brought all this on is gone. ICBC now is making, in the last two years, made $2.5 billion. Yep. In net, in net profit. So the reason and rationale behind, you know, denying people their rights and, and, and really capping things is gone. 
I don't understand why the government is continuing to to try to impose sort of this unfairness, but I think they're going to continue to do it. Um, and you know, we have no fault now, and people's rights have been completely stripped away. And I think that's going to continue on until there's a, a uh, either a political imperative to change. Um, or a legal imperative that changes it for them. Mm, interesting stuff. Well, well, obviously, we're going to keep tapping you as this goes forward because it's far from done. Bill, thanks very much for this. We do appreciate it once again. You're welcome, Sterling, anytime. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.